there's only one snack that can make me feel like I'm having the true movie theater experience, and that's popcorn. When my mom and I hang in for a girl's night, we have to get our fix, and that's where Kelly's Killer Popcorn comes in. They're a small batch gourmet popcorn company, and believe me, one bite and you'll be hooked. Made in Austin, Texas, this family-owned business has tons of flavors. My mom loves their salted agave caramel, while I have a hard time picking between black pepper or dill pickle. Hmm, maybe I'll just mix the bags together. Oh, and when my dad and brother crash our girl's night, you know that spicy nacho popcorn is coming out. Every flavor is popped in 100% real butter and is whole grain and gluten-free. Which flavor will you be choosing? Head on over to kellyskillerpopcorn.com to indulge yourself in some scary good gourmet popcorn. And make sure to tag them on Instagram at kellyskillerpopcorn so that they can see what movie you're pairing with their flavors. That's kellyskillerpopcorn.com for American-made, small-batch, delicious popcorn. I might be vegetarian, but that doesn't mean I can't enjoy a good spice rub. My favorite place to get them is Smoked Bros, a veteran-owned and operated business that sells premium handcrafted dry rubs, spice blends, and seasonings. Guys, you can even put it on your popcorn. My favorites are Honey Badger, because he doesn't give a bleep, and Jelly and Peanut Flavor Topping, because mm, 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 some things just taste better together. The website even has recipes, so go check out smokedbros.com to support a veteran-owned and operated business and fill your cabinet with delicious flavor. On the last episode of the Video Archives podcast, Quentin and Roger honored actor Rick Dalton by taking a look at the Marshal of Madrid. And that bazooka scene in the beginning. The bazooka scene is so great. I mean, it, that seems like the beginning of, of a Lethal Weapon movie. And then turn their attention to his role in Manhunter. I think James Olsen wins Best Supporting Actor. Oh, All right. The, the indignities never end for the him. The indignities <laughs> never end for him. And now we bring you the very last after show. I'm your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery. So, eagle-eared listeners may have figured out the clue I gave did not match up with either of the movies we watched last episode. Quentin, Roger, Josh, and I had all finished recording our thoughts and opinions on the movie in question and broke for lunch. We were planning on returning to the mic to talk about reviews and the Mad Magazine covers, which you can find pictures of in our CounterTalk newsletter this week, but during our lunch break, we heard about the passing of actor Rick Dalton. Recording was halted, and we knew that we had to do a two-parter to honor him and his roles, so we quickly got together over the next few days and put together an episode, which you heard one of last week. On this episode of The After Show, I'm unlocking the video vault, pull out the movie that was supposed to play last episode but did not make it on the air. Did you guys figure out my clue? Out of the vault, I present a discussion on Norman Jewison's Rollerball. But before we get into the complete discussion on Rollerball, I have the final part of my interview with my dad. Go back to After Show episode 18 so you don't miss a thing. The final part of my interview features a fan question asked by Walker from Prince Edward Island. Yep, that Walker who helped me find the tape of the apple. It spurred a discussion on the development of Silent Hill, the strength of copyright, and what the movie should have looked like. When writing Silent Hill, what kind of research did you do into the game or external media? And what was the most difficult part of adapting a video game? Silent Hill 2, the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the second game, I think, is a perfect game. 
And there's almost no reason to remake it because it's perfect as it is. And in fact, it's so good that the people who play it, I mean, th- they have lived that in a, in a way. Mm-hmm. And um, it's not a character, that, you know, that they've, it's, and it's, it's, it's them. They've gone through those experiences. They've felt the, the terrible, terrible loss that is felt during the, the, the extreme melancholic moments and the you know this the, the terrible loss that occurs to, without giving the game away um and so when Christoph approached me because it was Christoph who approached me to say I would like you to work with me on Silent Hill and so I and he said okay well we have a screenplay already we have a- had you played the game before uh, Christoph approached you yes I had played uh, Silent Hill 1 and Silent Hill 2 um, but I hadn't done, I think Silent Hill, I'm trying to remember if Silent Hill 3 was out at that point. I think it was already, it may have, the room may have even been out as well. Like, so actually a couple of Silent Hills beyond two, but I hadn't played any of the later ones. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, he was like, yeah, we have a screenplay, come to France and we'll, uh, we'll work on it. And so, as you know, we moved to France for a while. We I packed up the family and we went to France. Mm-hmm. And I arrived. And it turns out they didn't have a script. <laughs> they didn't have anything that even closely oh, resembled the a script. They had a French <laughs> script, which was not a script at all. It was like a kind of early proto-document with some ideas put down that didn't make any kind of sense. And so I spent like the first couple of weeks, I think, just sitting with Christoph and trying to understand what the hell was he talking about in this? I mean, really, it was a treatment. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a uh, a large treatment that um, our friend Nicholas Brukiev and he, he worked on together. I hope I pronounced his name correctly. Nicholas uh, um, and Christoph had put this little treatment together and they just wanted me to put words to it. And I looked at it and I was like, this doesn't make sense. Like, Nothing makes sense. And so I started, like, again, taking their thing apart and looking at it and then working with them to basically there were things in it that, okay, we know he wants this. This is from the game. He, We would sit down together and he would sit with the game and he would kind of control it and we would play it. And we would kind of do little walkthroughs with it. And he would and we would talk about camera angles and exactly what we wanted to do. So. There were several phases of the script writing. So first he had he had done the treatment. Then we sat down and put together a um, – I mean, we did our, our new treatment, I guess one could call it. But it was really more of a sales document. It was like a um, – Like a proof of concept. A proof of concept, you know, with, uh, you know, sort of what we wanted to do, the creatures we wanted to use, how we were going to approach character – um, originally, there were no men in the movie at all, whatsoever, only in the very, very beginning. But like, um, I mean, in the town, but really it was like there was a whole scene. There's scenes with the father that mm-hmm. weren't in the original script. The intention was to make this very, very direct um, female perspective of the uh, of the events that were occurring, specifically through these eyes and that he wanted to see through. And um, and we made a video, like we cut together a kind of a video and an, of us talking and explaining what we were going to do. We had it translated, and subtitles put to it, and we put titles to it, and we made it look all nice. And we sent it to Akira Yamaoka, who is the creator. So um, copyright in the world is strongest, in, mostly in France and um, Japan. 
they have really, really strong copyright laws, strong artists' rights laws, one should say, actually, because we don't have those artists' rights laws in the United States. Like filmmaker, like a screenwriter in the United States doesn't even own copyright mm -hmm. on what we write. Uh, we, we give it away, which is astonishing. Mm -hmm. Quentin doesn't give it away, but everybody else seems to give it away. So uh, we made this thing for him. We sent it to him. He accepted it. We had a meeting, uh, like a single uh, meeting with him because he speaks very little English. Much of it was about the music because we wanted him to do the composing for the mm -hmm. you know, to to lead the composing on the film. We wanted to use the music from the movie, um, from I mean, the game. I'm sorry, from the game. And so uh, th there was mostly, a, I guess, I could say, a period um, when we were in France where it was. Still, where the movie wasn't a green light. We didn't even have the rights to the movie, I discovered. Mm -hmm. Like, I suddenly realized, oh, we have to actually, you know. Go pitch it. Go pitch it to the, to the Japanese. And in, in Japan, um, Konami does not own uh, Silent Hill. I mean, they may own it, but they can't do jack shit without Akira Yamaoka. Because he's the creator and they have to go back to the original creator. So basically then I began writing and Christoph. Uh, you know, he would come to me and he would say, oh, their eyes must be blue, glowing blue. And I'm like, well, why? <laughs> and so it, every day was sort of like, what the hell is going on with this movie? And what is the story we're wanting to tell? Okay. For me, for my entry point to it was uh, Centralia, um, uh, Pennsylvania, which is a, a town where there was this coal fire, the, the coal reserves, the anthracite coal ignited. And um, spread. And this is a real thing that happened. Yeah, this is a real thing that happened. And I knew about it because, well, my dad, as you know, my dad is, uh, your grandfather is a mining, mining engineer. engineer. And so we, I grew up knowing all about Centralia. Um, and even beyond that, um, the Mar side of our family, M-A-R-R, -R, the Mar side of our family was the attorney for the Molly Maguires who were, you know, at the, anyhow, it goes back. Very complicated. You have to back go to like, all the way back. Got to go to the 1800s and, and the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, scary place, anthracite coal, like possible intentional ignition. Like there's all sorts of scary stuff mm -hmm. that goes on in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania when it comes to anthracite coal. And so, um, so knowing that, knowing the, the depth of, shall we say, gnarly history in Pennsylvania, and with respect to that area, I started thinking about the idea of an entire haunted town as opposed to just a haunted house or instead of one ghost, you know, a community of ghosts who don't even know they're dead. Mm -hmm. you know, anyhow, I had that that I that was something that was I wanted that, that you were really interested. In. I really, really wanted to incorporate that. That was, in fact. For me, that's what I was holding on to. Christoph was like like loading stuff onto me every day, like glowing blue eyes, you know, this, that, you know, this imagery, that imagery. And then I'm just trying to come up with something that makes sense to me. Now, if I were to base it on a film, and actually we should write this down, The Devil's Reign. That's a movie that I want to uh, I want us to show. Um, it was this movie, The Devil's Reign, with Ernest Borgnine and William Shatner that I saw when I was a kid. And the experience of watching that movie is what I wanted the experience of Silent Hill to be. Okay, so to all of you Silent Hill fans out there, go and watch The Devil's Reign. Yeah, especially since it's one of the movies we'll probably talk about. Because um, and I, don't, I haven't seen this movie since, like, it came out, pretty much. And um, – but – 
my visceral memories of the experience of watching that film and seeing people melting, like this orgy of melting people at the end of the film and the devil, Ernest Borgnine is the devil and like all the crazy stuff that's going on in that film. I mean, it left a deep, deep impression. You know that I was a cartoonist mm-hmm. growing up. And so Still are. many of my cartoons growing up are about the devil's reign. I've, I've gone back and looked over them. It's like, wow, I was really, as a young boy, affected by that movie. And so when when I did Silent Hill, it was like, I want that experience. It doesn't have to be like, and Christoph didn't want to make a shock scare movie. He wanted to make something that was atmospheric and unsettling. And I wanted to make The Devil's Reign, this orgy of insanity that feels like a kind of fever dream. Like, that's what I wanted it to be like. I think I, I achieved it. You know, mm-hmm. but but the primary agenda always was stay true to the soul of the material. Like we know that we're not going to be adapting it directly. We know we didn't want to do Silent Hill too, so we told this kind of other hybrid story, which would wasn't too much unlike you know an anime from manga or you know the, yeah the a divergent a diverging parallel universe. Because why story. would you need to remake Silent Hill two when it already exists? In almost perfection. As yeah, and said. so we wanted to interpret it into something new, which was something that Christoph wanted to tell, which is something that I wanted to tell, and you know, and something that the studio wanted to tell. And then you start getting into the normal movie making stuff. Like when I wrote the script, I originally had it was like um, uh, the Wizard of Oz. You have reality. You have Kansas, and then you go to Silent Hill. <laughs> you go to Oz. Um, I ended up with a little bit of a um, an issue because while shooting, they were shooting all the Silent Hill stuff. Uh, you know who Don Carmody is. Yes. Don I'm... Carmody was squeezing Christoph's balls and making him uh, cut stuff. And so Christoph said, well, we'll just cut off the beginning of the movie. Well, if you cut off Kansas and you just start Oz, in Oz like, or if you cut down the Kansas part to nothing – it, 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 You're only in Oz. It robs the movie a little bit of the meaning of mm-hmm. Oz. <laughs> yeah. like, you can't understand Oz without understanding Kansas first. Yeah. And that was largely true about the original material I wrote for the Silent Hill script. So I was like bummed. That, and I didn't even discover that until the movie was in its uh, – uh, So I was sitting in between the producer and the, and the director oh, gosh. at the premiere watching the film in horror. <laughs> realizing what they had done. Oh gosh. So there was, that was a change. And then the studio, you know, you start getting studio notes along the way and mm-hmm. they were insisting that we have a man be in the movie, that the husband to be in the film, that the husband to be in the film. And they were really leaning into heavily into that. And so if there's anything I would like to remove, I mean, listen, I love Sean Bean. I just would like to remove that element from the film. And I would like to restore the, uh, the, the beginning as it should have been. Yeah. Thanks to everyone who has listened to every after show following my conversation with my dad. We recorded it super early in our process before we were even airing, right when I had the idea for the after show. Quentin and Roger really believed in me and supported my idea completely. They helped me generate extra content, everything from answering tons of fan questions to discussions on films that didn't fit into our main episode and even revisiting movies that I wasn't able to watch. I'm just really grateful for their support. So are you guys ready for the discussion on Rollerball? I am really happy to be able to feature this segment on the after show. Not only is Rollerball a movie that is near and dear to my heart, but the conversation and analysis between Quentin and Roger was just too good not to air. Usually, an episode would have its intro. I write all of my intros after we discuss and then record it to kick off our next episode. 
kind of like a leapfrog. I didn't write one for this episode as we didn't finish recording, but to get us into the spirit of what the episode would have sounded like, I put together a little something to get our loyal listeners in the mood. So pour a tall glass of RC Cola, get your goobers and junior mints, and sit back and relax to enjoy the show. On this episode of the Video Archives podcast, Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery traveled to a not-too-distant future where wars no longer exist. But there is the game, Rollerball. A first-time watch for Quentin and a movie that Roger loves, we discuss the differing opinions on the world-building in Rollerball, the connections that this movie has to its original source material, and the rules of the game. Then, we discuss the titan that is Norman Jewison and the character of Jonathan. Is it worth it to give up your dream for a secretary? You decide. For me, all I have is the game. All of this and more on today's episode of the Video Archives podcast. I'm your girl, Gala Avery, and joining us now, here's Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery. Thank you, Gala. And yes, I am Quentin Tarantino, and I'm here with my co-host, Roger Avery. And we're here for another exciting episode of the Video Archives podcast. This isn't a 100% theme episode. It's theme-ish. A movie Roger has been wanting to do for a long, long, long time because it's one of his uh, favorite 70s movies, one of his favorite movies growing up. As again, I don't think I'm overselling it. No, this is absolutely <laughs> one of my very favorite movies of all time. When I was a kid, uh, we would play rollerball. Like, mm. you know, who's going to be Jonathan? Got it, got it. Cool. So okay. uh, this is something I grew up with. This was as mm. much a part of me as anything. This is probably one of the reasons I am the way that I am. Okay, well, okay. So there you go. Okay. Uh, uh, the movie is Rollerball. Roger has loved it for a long time. And one of the things that's made it very, very exciting for us to do this episode because Rollerball is a gigantic, iconic 70s title that I never saw. Which There's I- not that many of them, all right? So the fact that I've never seen Rollerball and now I finally have an excuse is really, really interesting. Well, it wasn't like I was uh, pushing Rollerball so hard, but when I heard that you hadn't seen it, I was like, well, h- hold on a second. Well, then the, here's the interesting thing about it, all right? To me, the second, if you're doing Rollerball, the second movie needs to be Death Race 2000. You know, Death Race 2000 was made as the as a cheap knockoff to beat Rollerball in the theaters. They both came out at the same time. Mm-hmm. They both had, I think, pretty tremendous success to one degree or another. Definitely Death Race 2000 did for New World Pictures. Both of them were successful. But both of them were successful. In the not-too-distant future, wars will no longer exist. But there will be Rollerball. Imagine a world without nations. A few of us making decisions on a global basis. Controlled by corporations. No sickness, no needs, and many luxuries. A society that has abolished love and hate, aggression, and individuality. And replaced them with the most fantastic entertainment of all time televised to two billion hypnotized viewers. It is more than a game. It is Rollerball. James Caan, John Houseman, Rollerball, rated R. Feeling manipulated and handled by large corporations? Well, you're not alone, because so are both Jonathan and Frankenstein. Two heroes in a double bill. It's Khan and Carradine. Double smash. Let the games begin. 
Rollerball with Co-Hit Death Race 2000 will be playing for two nights on Tuesday, June 20th and Wednesday, June 21st, 7165 Beverly Boulevard, Los Angeles, California, 90036. For tickets and more information, visit thenewbev.com, the new Beverly Cinema, where it's always on film, always on film, always on film, always on film. Always on film. Okay, so starting off then, we're going to start off with Rollerball. And uh, uh, I'm going to let Roger read the back of the box. Well, thank you. First of all, the the typeface that they use for Rollerball is, I think, one of the most beautiful futuristic typefaces. I have to say that was the 70s. Okay, but the idea that like the numbers are like are the early 1970s version of digital numbers. Back when that was like a thing. You'll probably remember in Darkstar, all of the computer readouts are using the same typeface. Yeah, that makes sense, actually. And in those days, in order to do all that, you would have to buy the Letra set transfer um and no it looked like the archives yeah. computer program it would come in like transferred <laughs> types and you would have to rub the transfer down to make your cards well everything about this box is beautiful it has yeah. a beautiful uh the poster art from the movie the one mm-hmm. sheet from the from the movie mm-hmm. which is done in this kind of airbrushed like atari 2600 yeah. video game box style and they show all the society people on it with their kind of Halston gowns and, and then James Kahn yeah. with his spiked glove in a fist. The back reads, Predominantly figuring in the rich genre of futuristic films, Rollerball takes a frightening look at life in the 21st century in its highly structured society, which has visually eliminated crime, pollution, and all other social dilemmas. Material comforts abound, making this existence seemingly perfect. However, the perfection is not apparent in the violent form of entertainment sought by the masses, the deadly physical contact sport of rollerball. James Kahn gives an impeccable performance as a battle-scarred veteran of the brutal sport, making the possibility of such a world all too alarmingly real. 123 minutes from Magnetic Video, a 20th Century Fox company. I don't think that back of the box does that great a description of describing how important Rollerball is to this futuristic society, where the actual TV spot that they used to have was fantastic. In the future, there will be no war. There will be no poverty. There will be no political unrest. The only thing there will be is rollerball. <laughs> you know, it's funny because that is on the poster. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it's not on the box. It's not on the box. And that really actually would but be. That, but that's what's important in this I always have, look, and and it's my problem with this movie. I always have a problem with the depiction of futuristic societies. Uh, You can't be too real as far as I'm concerned. And the minute I see phony costume design, which this movie is not terrible at, all right? This is not, that's not its Achilles heel, all right? But the minute I see uniform, terrible costume design, the minute I see unmotivated extras, all right, just uh, uh, mugging, not suggesting a social fabric going on, then I start asking questions and I start checking out. Here's the interesting thing about this movie in, in a strange way is either the film is too obscure. It's not telling us enough about exactly what the social fabric is. So we're left to make 
uh, choices of our own, which normally I like. In this case, I think this movie is a little too obscure. And then when it's not being obscure, it's being dead on the money and telling you exactly what the fucking point is. Um, but one of the things that's in the margins is watching this society, I got the impression that it's a similar society to 1984 with a similar set of bosses running it, i.e. the big brother, except here, as opposed to a totalitarianism, and everybody is made to be an assembly line worker, and everybody is just working at this gigantic auto plant, basically, (laughs) with what their existence is. It's the opposite. No, you're just bathed in luxury. You're bathed in you're bathed in wealth, you're bathed in luxury, you're bathed in all the conveniences of modern time. There is no working class. Everybody is the same. And so you just have nothing but pleasures and you have nothing but uh, leisure time. All right. But in order to have all these luxuries, you give up control over society. Basically, you're happy children. Happy enough, you're not, you know, a child, my son is not asking how the rent is paid. My son is not asking who's paying the bills. My son is not asking a lot of different questions, but he is living under our our totalitarian regime. (laughs) And he is meant to conform. Your Google future. Yes. (laughs) It's it's, uh, Panem and Chirchensis, which is the bread and circus Mm. of old imperial Rome. The 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 Brit- you don't worry about what we're doing with the rest of the world. You're a Roman and you just enjoy Brit. the pleasures of Rome. The bread the bread <laughs> are these pills that they keep taking. Yeah, that's calming everybody down. It's keeping them basically from getting emotional about anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the circus is obviously rollerball. Yeah, yeah, and and. These aren't new things. This is not even a dystopian well, future. Is that, this is a dystopian yeah, so present. That, so that pill, yeah. that pill that they give them, that's that's for when they have, you know, to use mixed mythologies, when they start having muscle memory that they're in the matrix. Yeah. <laughs> this pill is to put them back in a narcotic sense, all right? So it's, just enjoy the high. <laughs> Aldous Huxley would have called it Soma. Yeah, yeah. Huh? Which is just something to calm the masses down. Mm-hmm. And we have all these things today. I mean, some people might say TikTok is a kind of form of panic. Well, every that's form sort of entertainment, of from movies to television, today. well, that's what they, well, that's what they said forever. That was the line is TV is opium for the masses. Sure. And Religion sure, is opium for the I'm masses. I'm sure at one point books <laughs> were the opium of the masses. My favorite discussions between Quentin and Roger are the ones in which they disagree. And let me tell you, Rollerball was on Moonraker's level. Yes, the segment on Rollerball actually took longer than Moonraker to record, if you can believe that. Listen in as Quentin and Roger differ on the logic behind the world building in Rollerball. And as always, Roger refers back to the original short story. Look, I think it's a problem with the movie that there's there's obscurity about the rules of this society. And oh, well, we're never actually really shown anything outside of Jonathan's class because I went back to the short story. OK, huh? uh, written by William Harrison, who also wrote the screenplay. He lays it out very clearly. And actually, Bartholomew also kind of lays it out in his expository uh, yeah. discussions. Yeah. That Bartholomew is sort of the executive in charge the of- The John Houseman character. The John Houseman character. There is an executive class. That's a ruling class. Mm-hmm. They make the decisions. But that's the Communist Party. And basically, he says, the only thing we've ever asked is that executive decisions are not questioned. 
other than that, everything seems to be taking care of it for everybody and everything seems to be fine. Now, Jonathan E., who's uh, played by James Caan, mm-hmm. he's part he's a celebrity athlete and he makes up what's called the provisional privileged class. Mm-hmm. OK, so he has access to me. This doesn't sound any different than like, uh, especially in the 70s. The ruling Communist Party. I was just getting. I was just getting to communism, but but less less in Russia and more in China. Absolutely in China, because after uh the death of Mao, Mm. the the next people said, "Well, this is not going to work unless we allow some people to get rich." And so they came up with the idea of capitalism for for some of us. Part of my part of my problem with Rollerball is I don't buy the closed mindedness of uh, 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 of the executive class at the end of the day, uh, where. Uh, the Communist Party of China has actually shown themselves to be resilient, all right, to changing orders in the world. Well, if you're, cha- uh, if you're the tra- communist China will allow eventually allow a Hard Rock Cafe to put a Hard Rock Cafe in Beijing. That shows a nuance that's not in there uh, uh, with the executive uh, class of rollerball until they decide they don't want it there. The idea is that uh, the tribalism of countries has been eradicated. And the idea is that four of the biggest companies have just decided to just divide up the world. The, the way uh, uh, the way the free world divided up uh, Europe after World War II, these companies have divided up the earth. Yeah, and so it's corporations running sections of the globe. My problem with them is they don't act enough like corporations. They act too much like dystopian governments. And the whole point of it is they should be acting from a profit motivation and being a corporation. From the short story, the most powerful men in the world are the executives. (laughs) They run the major corporations, which fix prices, wages, and the general economy. And we all know that they're crooked. This is, by the way, in the short story, Jonathan is the one kind of narrating. But I have considerable power and money myself, and I'm still anxious What can I possibly want, I ask myself, except possibly more knowledge? That's gotten across in the movie, but that's almost in an oblique way. For all the times that all the times there's twice, twice that the movie errs by by stating its theme, usually in the mouth of John Huston. Yeah. All right. Delivering it or, or Moses Gunn delivering it directly to the audience. That's a thing where they actually state the theme that's artistic. <laughs> Jewison places his movie sometime around 2018, uh-huh. which seems about right to me, actually. And 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 it's and it's pretty clear that yeah. he, um, um, through all the quotes that he's given and talking mm. about the movie and everything, he kind of viewed this as I'm sure when he read the short story, an allegory for himself on dealing with Hollywood, yeah, yeah, yeah. and dealing as a creative, mm-hmm. uh, growing too big for his britches. Having to take the notes, Look, always I, being on the outside. He's a Canadian. Well, it's a, well, there is a very interesting aspect that I hadn't thought of until you just mentioned it. The whole concept is this dystopian future where an executive class runs everything. Do not question the orders of the executive class. But if you don't question the orders of the executive class and you're a good employee and we like you, you're like, you're like, we like you in the room. No, 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 no. You're good. We like you. We like you, i.e. the executive class. Uh, um, then you just keep your fucking mouth shut and do what you're supposed to do and you will live a life of luxury. Well, what is the industry that exists completely through an executive class? It's Hollywood. It's Hollywood. And you tip over your own apple cart when you rock the boat 
of the executive class of Hollywood. Now, there are some people that are so powerful that they're beyond the executive class. They actually have the power of the executive class and they get to call their own rules. But other people, no, you're just working at the pleasure of this magnificent system and you don't rock the fucking boat. And sometimes your success is not based on entirely on the greatness of your expression, but the fact that your expression happens to align with those of the corporation. Okay, here's the thing I don't buy. There are no more wars. There are no more problems in the world because there's this futile, bloody sport (laughs) that happens that, you know- uh, uh, That's why the Olympics were invented. Well, I get that, but, but nobody says the Olympics, that achievement is meaningless. All right, that's their point. Yeah, no, I get the idea that the World Cup is popular because Italy and Argentina can fight each other and nobody's actually, it's, it's all metaphorical. All right, I get that, but they're not creating a, um, a metaphor for war. They're creating a metaphor for carnage. They're creating a metaphor for cannon fodder. They're creating a metaphor for massacre. And, and only a score is, is only rooting interest, is only drama. That's the only, it's the only drama inside of this massacre. And you know, uh, I don't buy the fact that a superstar arising would bother a corporation so much. I actually think it would make Rollerball even more sellable. Well, it's not that he's, it's not, that he's not uh, succeeding enough for the corporation. It's just that he's not towing the line. He's not uh, falling in line. But it's in a different way, though. It's as if uh, 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 you're a bad wrestler, all right? And, uh, okay, so the scenario now is that you're going to lose this match, and so the good wrestler can win. All right, so he's not following the scenario. But in their case, the scenario isn't winning or losing. It's, no, you, now you need to retire. All right? you, you need to step down. That's my point about this monolith, is the idea that any major corporate executive that is supposed to be the way... Uh, 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 John Houseman is in the piece when he's watching the final game. Okay, maybe, maybe the product the corporation is selling is rollerball, and maybe the product is that it's senseless and useless, and that is the point. But they're still selling a product to and with a profit motive. All right, to customers, and when the customers show what they want and they want Jonathan, then I think any. Any corporate executive in that kind of power position, okay, change the plans. Okay, we were wrong. Okay, we were saying go right. Okay, no, 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 it's go left. It's go left. It's a no. Now it's all about, we can still salvage exactly what it is we like about this product, but we can sell Jonathan. If the public wants Jonathan, then the public has spoken. So plot-wise, James <laughs> Kahn plays the greatest rollerballer of all time, Jonathan E. Yeah. He's the best of the best. He's like the Joe Namath or the O.J. Simpson or, of, their yeah. day, of their day. He's the, the Jim Brown. Yeah, he's yeah. the Jim Brown. He's the best of the best. He's, he's all so, three of those guys wrapped up in one ball. He's so good <laughs> that when they go to Madrid, they're ch- the Madrid people are chanting, Jonathan, Jonathan. Yeah, 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 and yeah. it's starting to get to the point where he's getting bigger than the game. It's actually kind of interesting now that I'm thinking about it. Rollerball is kind of an unhumorous satire, where Death Race 2000 is a humorous satire. There is a satirical element, for sure. Yeah, you know, to to Rollerball, it's just it's not trying to make you laugh. You know, I, <laughs> I, I, I thought about it yesterday, and I was like, 
Rollerball is to Barry Lyndon as Death Race 2000 is to Tom Jones. That's a really an, everybody that's a loves Tom Jones. It's they a fantastic go, analogy. They want to go see Tom Jones. Mm-hmm. Tom Jones is a great. You walk out like, woo, that's a great night at the movies. Let's go to dinner now. Wow. <laughs> it's like a fun time. Yeah. Let's give that one a whole bunch of Academy Awards. OK, in the meantime, Kubrick is over there on the side making, you know, a, a serious something more austere, <laughs> an austere, somewhat pretentious uh, yeah, like a, a, approach. You know, there's, he's there's no British music hall or uh, you know comedy vibe. The thing is, you know, I thought about this because comparing these two movies and they're easily comparable. And one was actually um, a uh, well, they also have a well, or, or, they're easily comparable, and they also have an opposite effect. You know, well, really about them, they're, they're like literally on like. Two different sides of a seesaw. I don't look at these films as one being better than the other because I think they're both such magnificent movies. I see them as confederates of each other, Uh, as they are saying the same thing. I like Death Race Two Thousand more, but I completely agree with you. They are they are symbiotic. They are symbiotically connected. They are confederates. They are they are they are linked in arms. Knowledge is what Jonathan wants, and there's a discussion about knowledge and giving knowledge in the short story. This is Bartholomew telling Jonathan, knowledge, he tells me, either converts to power or it converts to melancholy. So Jonathan is actually, there's a scene where Jonathan is trying to tell the the new recruits, which uh, is also mentioned in the book, the kind of the new guys, mm-hmm. the new players are there. New guys on the team. And the level of knowledge that he's expected to give is sort of like how to play the game. And he starts telling them strategies. How to, you know, how to do this, how to do that, how to knock things over. And they actually don't want to listen. They're just like, oh, we're just going to crush heads. Mm -hmm. And he almost has to make a point of it. Mm -hmm. So Jonathan's knowledge, and he's at the top of his game. Nobody even wants to to take anymore. It's it's actually inconsequential. The more they're peeling away the rules of the game, his knowledge is useless. Stay in your lane. I mean, you have a pretty big lane, but Mm -hmm. you've got to stay in it. One of the things about the futuristic society and rollerball that I thought was really funny was I found it near identical to the futuristic society Woody Allen puts forth in Sleeper. <laughs> With the orb. Except one is completely humorless and one is like the humorlessness is played for comedy. To the point that, one, it almost feels as if John Houseman is walking around Sleeper <laughs> at some point. Uh, he, his character, we wouldn't have to even give him any jokes. His character could j- be walking around Sleeper. But, you know, having all those people at the party and how they're kind of, hey, and they're wiping each yeah. other's faces with their hands. No, it and, seems like, a, no. hey, would you want a pill? And, like, yeah. they're all grooving out. And, and no, it's <laughs> it makes Sleeper look like the Saturday Night Live parody of Rollerball. <laughs> I mean, to the point that John Beck is in both of them. Oh, right. He is. That was John Beck's time. Yeah. All the executives <laughs> dream of being rollerballers, Moon Pie. Crashing <laughs> heads. So John Beck exists in both universes, in both futures, <laughs> the sleeper future and the rollerball future. They're adjacent. Which I say are- They're adjacent. <laughs> they're, at, 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 le- at the least, they're adjacent if they're not exactly the same thing. Yeah. We'll be right back after this break. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show. 
available wherever you get your podcasts. And now let's get back into the episode. I was chomping at the bit to get in on the conversation. And when Quentin called my name, I was ready to go. Listen in as we talk about the ambiguity of rollerball, the dangers of the internet, and the Tokyo sequence. And we're joined by the lovely Gala. So Gala, you watched Rollerball. Is this your first time watching Rollerball? No. I'm assuming that people know since Roger is my father, he would play this movie for me like over and over. But like, I don't really remember watching it. All I remember about this movie is the sequence where they are blowing up the trees. Yeah. Mm. Because he would play that scene and he would just like, okay, we're going to watch the tree burning scene. Okay, so this, the scene is we're at this crazy party, which may as well be the it's party. It's supposed to be Jonathan's retirement party, it's, but Yeah, Jonathan's retire. farewell party. It's become his farewell party that he and he doesn't want to do farewell. And all the executives are there and it turns into this kind of groovy Hollywood party where everybody's mm-hmm. pill popping and mm-hmm. wife swapping and doing whatever. And then in the wee hours of the morning when everybody's kind of passed out and everything. A bunch of people come out of a room and kind of all half drunk and a little group of them carrying this crazy pistol and they go out into the, uh, backyard, this vast backyard Mm -hmm. of this place where there's this row of trees and start crazily shooting with this gun that has bullets that just blow trees up. Uh And the kind of the, the lust of a destruction that and and the glee that starts filling these people as they're like wantonly firing this gun against nature because it bores them because nobody I'm not even sure why it's just, just be, because fun. of the apathy of yeah. the world that just they're for in. fun to be honest I haven't watched this movie like as an adult I've seen this movie as a kid and I didn't really like the movie as a kid like I didn't understand it it's like long it's boring to me okay now I'm 27. I've been doing this podcast for a little while. I've been working with my dad for a little while. Okay, I get it now. I understand. And part of the reason I understand this, and I'm sure a lot of viewers have picked up on Roger's love for this piece of media, is because of The Prisoner. Yeah, he is number six, actually. Yeah. In the, now that what I think about does, it. What do they want from Patrick McGowan? Information. He is not just you a number. You won't get it. Yeah, and you won't get it. By hook or by crook, I will. Yeah. He is not a number. He is a free man. And Jonathan's jersey is number six. Wow. Yeah. But so that's why I understand the movies, because who is number one? You are number six. (laughs) I love that locker room sequence, which kind of just sets up the whole entire tone of the movie for me, especially that line that Roger quoted earlier, which is you want to be an executive, but they dream of being you. And it's because number nine, uh, who's the really cool guy with the scar on his face. Moon Pie. Moon Pie. He's just kind of gotten on the team and he's taken under his wing and he doesn't even have his privilege card yet. At the very beginning of the movie, he says, man, when I get my privilege card, the first thing I'm going to do is get a secretary. Yeah, yeah. It's the very first thing I'm going to do. So he's just coming up to being able to get his privilege, which is a secretary. Yeah. Now, the sequence afterwards where the executive wants to speak with James Caan... I don't think his wife went on her own free will because first off, it's like, oh, yeah, I heard that she wanted to go, but they've taken everything from me. Well, that would be truly dystopian if she wasn't in control, because nobody in this world, if it's truly dystopian, is making their own choice. Yeah. And I don't think that his wife left him on her own free will. I think she's been moved like 
cattle kind of to the next job, to the next place, because an executive looked at her and an executive wanted her. And he even says that. And the guy's like, oh, yeah, I heard she left on her own free will. But no one has free will in this world except maybe for the executives. And I don't it's a debate if it is true or not that she left on her. It, she wanted it to makes leave. more. Yeah, it, it makes it's more consistent with my view of this world that Jonathan is in that that she has no actual free choice, just like he has no free choice. Ultimately, in the end, they're just tools of the executive class. I think this is I think that I think this is a problem with the film. There, There, there is like I'm. I think I'm officially on record as being a proponent of ambiguity, but not to the point where it's like everything is a fucking question. You know, I mean, there is a certain aspect that I want to have my feet solid on the ground when it comes to an entire world mythology that you're selling me. And I, you don't have to answer everything, but you should give me enough answers that, that there. I have more of a fighting chance when it comes to me making decisions on my own about why characters did what they did. There's just so much unknown about this and even vaguely contradictory. All right. Well, putting the short story aside, okay. it, it, it actually is uh, um, not that ambiguous mm-hmm. because he, he says like, well, you know, he brings up his wife and he's like, Oh, do we have to get into that again? You know, she left, she's, she went with the other executive. She went on her own free will. Like that's like, stop bringing that up. And he he can't stop bringing it up. He's in love. Yeah. He's in love. And he just wants her back. Let's just really quickly just talk about how great Norman Jewison is. Yes. Because when I saw, the, I saw yeah. the film before this recent reviewing, a couple of years back, I, uh, I was watching. I was thinking, God, how did he do this? How do you make this movie that is clearly a, a fable about Hollywood mm-hmm. and an anti-corporate thing? And how do you do that? When basically you're making it about the very business that you're in. And well, he produced it as well. This is the most Norman Jewison film there is. And I think it's in many ways his most personal statement. I think it's even still his best film personally. Really? Because I I watch this movie and I think this is an absolutely ludicrous sport to try to capture. Uh, This is the most wonky idea on paper. And if you told, if you showed me roller derby from the seventies and said, we're going to make a big roller derby movie. I just don't know that I would have had this vision. And yet the vision that he, he does from the opening, even, even with the kind of the artifice of using the, um, the Takata and Fugue and D minor, you know, like really, uh, becoming self-conscious about the Dodger stadium kind of organ. Yeah. Yeah. And and then shooting it in this kind of very realistic way on this very large and very realistic set, and then making it feel somewhat real, this ridiculous concept, making it feel real can only be appreciated by watching the remake Mm -hmm. of the movie. It was by a director I love very much, but I just do not like the film. And when you watch that film, you see in anyone else's hands what the production design looks like. I mean, this is production designed by John Box, who did The Keep, who did uh, um, Sorcerer. This is is one of the most beautiful movies, I think, of all time. The first 15 minutes, which is just basically it starts with the first 15 minutes of, of it starts with a, a full on presentation of a rollerball game right at the beginning. Yeah. From, play, from the audiences coming in. To yeah, the, exactly. From to the, the game itself. From the beginning, from an empty auditorium to a full auditorium to a full game. Yeah. Played out in about 15 minutes. Those 15 minutes are so exciting. He manages to do a magnificent job of both filming it thrillingly as an action filmmaker filming it thrillingly and also still sort of duplicate T 
TV coverage. Yeah, helping you to under, understand yeah. watching just, the game. But just better TV coverage than you would normally see. He gives you exactly well, what you want right almost, away. Yeah, it's almost his strategy to thwart viewers' expectations about every other aspect of the film, except for the first 15 minutes where he gives you the TV spot <laughs> that made you buy a ticket in the first place. It feels do, like I, a, there's a lot of things about the society that Rollerball takes place in. That's my problem with the film that I do not understand. I do understand the game. Yeah. OK, so 36 minutes and he goes to that library. OK, that library sequence. I was like, oh, my God, Jesus Christ. We are currently living in Rollerball today because he's not talking to a librarian. He's talking to the Internet Yeah. yeah. where everything has been. Edited. He's talking to the AI in charge of the information well, on well, the internet. They make they make they make a big deal about the idea that it's like they give a book about history or a book about whatever subject to this computer. The computer takes it and breaks it down to facts, and then holds those facts in. Uh, uh, the computer and then you come and then you ask the computer questions. So that is the equivalent of Google. You're given information, but you're not given history. You're given the answer, but you're not given context. Uh, 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 you don't learn anything. I love it because Moon Pie first off says, what do you need books for? And he's like, I just like, I want to, I want to learn. And then afterwards he says, anything you need to know, you can just hire a corporate teacher. Yeah. It's just to control exactly and to curate exactly what you know. And later he goes to the AI. Now, this ties into my theory, Quentin, about why the rollerball industry does not focus strictly on him. Okay, so when he's at his farewell party, his coach and him are talking and they're trying to figure out who is making these rule changes. Like, why are these rule changes being made so simply? And they don't know. It's someone above the executive class that's making these changes. Who else could that be? It's the computer. It's zero. It's zero the computer. Uh, it's more than number one. It's zero. Yeah. And zero the computer, in my opinion, is the one above the ruling class that is making these rule changes because they are afraid of James Conn, of Jonathan E. Because Jonathan E. is more than the game. And as they say in the very last scene, this was never meant to be a game. Never. It's meant to be the thing that placates society. That, uh, <laughs> a, 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 met a, a metaphor for cannon fodder. Yeah. Right. It's, it's literally what's supposed to placate the consumer class to make them think, hey, every week you get your rollerball game. You get to see a couple of guys die. Their heads get bashed in. You're happy. You're satiated. You don't need to go read that book. You don't have to ask what happened to the 13th century, which, by the way, was Genghis Khan mm -hmm. conquering Europe and sweeping his way Attempting through. Attempting to conquer Attempting Europe to and conquer his, Europe. his final battle in Lignitz in Poland. But that's... <laughs> well, it's, I, when, it's when all of Europe gathered together to hold off the invasion that, you know, that was coming. It and was, that's what the computer's throwing away. We can't find the 13th century. We don't know what happened there. No one is bigger than the game, but all of a sudden Jonathan becomes bigger than the game and the computer is terrified of that because once you're not looking at your iPhone screen and you're actually looking at a figure, like you're looking at God, you're bigger than the game. I mean, you know, it's one of the weird situations of, 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 of this time that we live in is for my entire life, I filled my head with all this facts about movies and this and that and the other and only for it to come to a time where 
that's information is just on everybody's iPhone. And so you sit there and you have a talk with somebody and then they look it up. All right. As you're talking and then they see what you're talking about. And either they criticize you because you didn't get it 100 percent right, according to what this thing says, according to what they're reading. Forget about the fact that I actually have knowledge. They don't know shit. You were there. Uh, Yeah, exactly. But they don't have knowledge either because they have the answer to their question for the second. But they're not going to remember it. It's not going to stay in their head. You know, when I went to the library and I looked up this movie and then wrote down, oh, the cinematographer of... Uh, Made your uh, own IMDb of, listing. Uh, of uh, Southern Precinct 13 was Douglas Knapp, yeah. <laughs> you know, and then uh, Joseph Kaplan was the producer and da-da-da-da-da, wrote that stuff down. Well, then as years went on, I remembered writing that down. Yeah. That's knowledge. Yeah. And that's, that's actually inspirational, Quentin. I just want to let you know, I've started not looking at my phone and I've, I take a time and I think, okay, can I remember? Can I recall? Yeah. And I actually find myself being able to recall, but it's desperately, you always want to reach for that like device because you've been crutch. trained to, it's a crutch to not use your you brain. Know, there's a line in the, which I have to mention in the short story where Bartholomew is telling him, we have great film libraries. You could get a permit to see anything you want. The Renaissance, Greek philosophers. I saw a nice summary film the other um, on the life and thought of Plato mm-hmm. the other day. And so what's the difference between that and a streaming service when history gets boiled down to a few short documentaries that are available for streaming if you subscribe mm-hmm. um, to that service? And the, he makes another really good point about the books being gone. Bartholomew says, I'm one of the few with real regrets about what happened to the books. Everything is still on tapes, but it just isn't the same, is it? Nowadays, only the computer specialists read the tapes, and we're right back to the Middle Ages when only the monks could read the Latin script. Let's talk a little bit about the Tokyo sequence, because that sequence and that fight is, in my opinion, really good. Like, it's I don't like sports movies, (laughs) but I actually got emotional during the Tokyo sequence. Like, first off, when the, the Tokyo team, they play dirty and they don't play by the rules, and there are less rules in this one. And they come down like a little arrow. Oh, I love their little formation yeah, that like they the come in on. Too, yeah. Like Jonathan and his guys tend to go in a line. They go in line. Yeah. And those guys go in kind of a, a delta formation as they come. They're, I, I love their little and how they skate with their, yeah, with their, their, their fists, fists going, going forward. Up. Their judo. Yeah, their uh, judo fists. Yeah. And so before all these rollerball games, just like we have the national anthem before sports games, they play the corporate anthem. and The corporate hymn. Yeah, the corporate yeah, the hymn. Corporate hymn. Which is so tuneless, it could have been written by Chris Sarandon in, uh, in uh, uh, lipstick. lipstick. God, I'm so glad I'm not hearing that. And I think they make, a, they make a point out of making it very bland. No, it's like tuneless. There's you, absolutely no tune to it at all. You would never be able to hum that back. When you actually hear the National Anthem played in Death Race 2000, it seems like the most rhythmic song ever after watching Rollerballs. Corporate hymn. So they're playing the corporate hymn. Bland by design. Bland by design. And the Japanese team and the Houston team, specifically Houston, not USA. It's all cities because there are no countries anymore. Yes. Houston versus Tokyo. And they're kind of sizing each other up during this corporate hymn. I got emotional during this Tokyo sequence because number nine, Moon Pie, his protege, the Japanese team, they play dirty. And Jonathan has been kind of trying to like tell them like they use judo and stuff like that. But the the new guys, they just want to like go in and bash heads. They just want to go get bloody and take their gloves and stuff. 
And when they get to Tokyo, they are not prepared yeah. for the Tokyo team. This Tokyo team, they're like, oh, these guys are small. They are vicious. Jonathan, number six, tells number nine, Moon Pie, to stay close, stay close, stay close. And at one point, they hit Jonathan. The Tokyo team attacks Jonathan and he falls and he has to get substituted out for just a second because his shoulder, that old injury that he has yeah. on his shoulder gets hurt. And when he's not out on the track, the Tokyo team attacks Moon Pie. And it is, I got emotional actually, because it is, they, three of them jump on him and they take off his helmet and they raise their glove and they punch him in the back of the head. And you can tell he's out. They actually do to him what he's joking about doing to people, about punching him in the ganglia. Yeah. yeah. And during the training, he's sequence. like kind of joking out. All you got to do to these little guys, is just you know, punch him in the ganglia. And that's <laughs> what happens to him. And he hits the ground and they take him off the track. And James Conn as Jonathan is sitting in the substitution zone and his shoulders all bloody and his pad is sticking out of the other shoulder. And he sees them bring Moon Pie in and they put a pillow under his head and they put, I'm going to cry. They put the oxygen on his face and James Conn sees him. And what does he do? He ties his laces really tight and he goes back out there and he fights and he goes and he tracks down those guys. Those three guys. And he <laughs> kicks ass kicks appropriately. Ass. He kills them. Yeah. When he takes off Tokyo number four's helmet and he does to Tokyo mm. number four what Tokyo number four just did to number nine. And the look in his eyes, because he realizes this is what the game's turned into. And he goes and he visits Moon Pie in the coma. And the doctor just wants him to sign his release form that they can turn off life support. Oh, he's just a vegetable. Oh, he doesn't dream. There's nothing going on there. And Jonathan says, even a plant feels something. It senses life. It turns towards the sun. It's alive, isn't it? Okay, can I just add? Because uh, okay, the the doctor in that is Bert, Bert Kwok. And actually, my favorite fucking line in the entire movie is after. Okay, so you just did the perfect, like, uh, the plant. Does it need this? <laughs> if you put, push, uh, uh, subject him towards the light, is it he yeah, returned to the sun? It? It's like. Who's to say? No, <laughs> and then afterwards, he's like, "It's like my favorite line in the book." Who's to say? No, just sign here. Just like, and then he follows it up with saying, "This hospital has rules." And James Con turns to him and says, "No, it doesn't." And he's basically, "Well, if there's no rules in the game, there's no rules yeah, in life." Because, yeah, it's exactly. Yeah. And it's so good. I had a boss. I had a boss uh, at a. Uh, uh, I worked for a while as a headhunter at a headhunting organization executive uh, search ironically yeah that's exactly yeah. yes it is that's what it, that's what a headhunter is uh but i remember the boss of the company was a big rollerball fan he goes man i mean i just one of the great moments of a movie was the end and then just during that final moment and when the whole crowd jonathan 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 he talked to he got like you he got misty all yeah. right talking about it and 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 just jonathan alone on the track, on fire, dead bodies everywhere, skating. He's supposed to have gone down well, and uh, he's fought back <laughs> against the man. I will say while I am arguing against the movie, all right, you know, as, as this three X structure is going on, even I responded to the final round of the game because it like it was so like the first round of the game. Norman Jewish and the director takes over. If this conversation made you interested in Rollerball, it is available for streaming all over. 
I picked up my VHS on eBay for $8.99. It is an MGM UA original release. Bam. And that's our show. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Video Archives After Show. Next week, join us for our final main episode as we continue part two of Day of the Dalton, where we honor actor Rick Dalton's career. I feel really bad about the mismatch clues from last episode, so I'm going to go ahead and give you guys the movies that are featured in next week's discussion. I want you to be able to follow along, so make sure to check out 1984's Blast Fighter, 1986's Operation Nam, and 1985's Jungle Raiders, all movies where Rick Dalton plays the lead role. Before I lock up the store, next week is our last main episode, but don't worry, we still have one more episode in season one, our awards show. So that means this is the very last after show. Thank you guys so much for tuning into the after show. I really appreciate all of the love and support from my loyal listeners. Because of you, I was able to make these episodes happen. Without you guys tuning in every week, I wouldn't be able to do all of the additional research and provide the vaulted outtakes and conversations. It's a little cheesy, but I had a lot of fun creating these episodes with the support of Quentin and Roger and the help of fellow producer Josh. So thanks, guys. I really... What? G- Gala, what are you doing here? Oh, Dad, I, nothing. I'm just, I, you know, shuffling some tapes for look, Quentin. I, it's after hours. The store's supposed to be closed. I, I came by to pick up a copy of The Prisoner. I came by to get uh, Chimes of Big Ben. What are you, what are you doing here? You know, just a, a little bit of work that I had to Is do. behind the counter? What's d- d- don't don't worry about any of Josh? this. Josh, what's d- going d- on don't here? Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. I got to go. I, 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 I got my tape. I'm out. Whatever you're up to, lock up. The store's closed. Okay, well, it looks like it's time for me to close up the shop. I should probably return that key that I stole in the first episode. Key? Is that my key? It, it, nothing, Dad. Don't worry about it. Anyway, my name is Gala Avery, signing out for one final time. Thanks again, and have a good night. Come on, Gala. Put some hustle into it. Let's go. Despite me sharing the same last name with this charity, I don't have any affiliation with it, besides the fact that the issue is very near and dear to my heart. Did you know that in the United States, 2.7 million children currently have a parent in prison, and it's estimated that 10 million children have experienced parental incarceration at some point in their lives? I was one of these kids, and as an adult, I am really grateful to be able to give back to Project Avery. Their mission is to build leadership from within by supporting community through programs such as mentoring and outdoor education, and also to remove the stigma surrounding having a parent that's incarcerated. You don't have to feel alone. If you know a kid who could use these resources or would like to donate money or time to the charity, please go to Project Avery, that's A-V-A-R-Y dot org, to check out what this amazing charity is all about. Again, that's projectavery.org. Thank you, guys from the bottom of my heart. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show. 
available wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.